The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and my husband, Steve, and I are the founders of this podcast. We are closing in on the end of our third year podcasting, and we sincerely hope that one of our episodes, or maybe more than one, has spurred you to get help if you yourself are addicted or to get help for a loved one if you have a loved one who is addicted. We continue to spread the message of hope and help, and we sincerely hope that we are helping you. We would like to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also check us out on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel now. And today's episode will be a video and will be up on YouTube. And if you can subscribe to our channel, that would be great as well. The more you subscribe, the more you give us ratings, the more people find our podcast and the more we can help other people as well. So today we're going to be doing an interview. We're going to be interviewing a young man named Philip Markoff. He's an online influencer and thought leader on addiction education. Now, he's also known as his alias, which is CG Kid. And we're going to ask him to tell us what exactly that means and where he got that alias. He has obtained a large audience primarily on YouTube as a vlogger and journalist. He has his own story of addiction and recovery and uses that to educate others, those in addiction or family and friends, so that they can take steps to recovery. Without further ado, let's talk to Philip Markoff. Just before we get started, an editorial comment. My neighbor is doing yard work, so if you can hear the machines going in the background, I apologize, but well, there you are. My neighbors are doing their yard work. So Philip, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your willingness to tell your story. Yeah, thank you. And you obviously tell your story quite a bit on YouTube and I applaud you for that because it appears that you are reaching a lot of people and you have a very good message. So well done you. Hey, thank you. You're welcome. But Philip, start, start with the beginning. Like how did you get started on your own path to addiction? How did that happen? Well, uh, <clears throat> Um, when I was very, my earliest memory would be probably when I was like five, I was, um, bullied for, for being a ginger, <laughs> but, uh, you know, as a, and looking back, it was silly, but you know, when I was five, uh, I think it had some impact on my brain development. Um, I know trauma can cause neural pathways to produce endorphins and dopamine to be obstructed, especially, uh, if we're not receiving the love that we should receive. And then uh, further on, I got emotionally abused by my, my parents through neglect, uh, being an emotional spouse. In other words, confiding emotions in me, a very traumatizing divorce where um, like uh, one of my parents didn't really uh, spend time with me until the divorce happened. And then that parent uh, started confiding in me about his problems and there was no room for my emotions. And at school, there was no room for my emotions because kids are vicious. And so I just never really got the uh, love that 
I needed as a child. And uh, like I said, I, I when I look into cognitive science, uh, mainly developmental science, where they talk about how the child brain develops, um, neural pathways to produce endorphins don't get developed. It's the same as if you put a blindfold on a baby. Eventually, the baby's not going to see if the blindfold's always on it because it won't produce the neural pathways to have vision. And they call this neurodarwinism. And it's a real thing, and there's tons of studies to prove it. So my addiction really is is really a, a stunt in my cognitive development, and that's really where it started. And uh, so when you don't produce, when I didn't produce enough endorphins or dopamine, I started looking for that in the external world, and I looked for that in many ways. So one of the big things I found it in is if people don't love me, at least they'll need me. So I found if I make kids laugh, they'll need me to laugh. They don't love me and they don't know who I am because I'm putting on this mask to make them laugh. It's not really what I would do, like acting outlandish in school. But I did it because it made them laugh and, and they needed me to laugh. And uh, it's the same with my parent. Well, he doesn't love me, but at least he'll need me if I'm there for him to confide, confide his emotions into. And that's where I started finding joy in the outside world. So the first time I used substances, I was 17 years old. But really, I mean, it was just... To me, it was just another way to find joy in the outside world. It was another way to fit in. And um, whenever I did it, it felt like a puzzle piece in my brain that was missing for a long time. It fit right into it. And that puzzle piece was a stunted cognitive development. My brain doesn't work like the everyday person. So if I'm not producing enough dopamine and drugs raise that dopamine to a normal level, that's exactly what they did. They made me feel normal. And there was no question of whether this is right or wrong. It, it was more of like, this makes me feel complete. I felt like a caveman who discovered fire. And uh, I was off to the races from there. <laughs> right. What was the first drug you tried? Uh, it would be marijuana. Um, but, you know, it didn't work the first time. Alcohol worked. Um, I, I don't know if I didn't know how to smoke it or if it just didn't. Um, it, I need my brain needed to adjust to the way that it acted, but uh, first time I ever felt drunk, um, you know, that was really the time where I felt like this completes me, you know, this makes me okay with myself. This makes me comfortable with an unoccupied mind. You know, that was a big thing before I, I drank was my mind always had to be occupied with something. I was uncomfortable in silence. And um, when I was drunk, it was the first time I was able to sit back and be comfortable with nothing on my mind. Interesting. And I just because you said that they teased you about being a ginger, I know that your um, nickname or your on-screen name is CG Kid. Is that where that started? What does that mean, CG Kid? Uh, uh, it means crazy ginger kid. And, uh, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... I, 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 as an adult, it's like I own it. I call myself the ginger avenger and stuff, and it doesn't bother me at all. But as a kid, that was like an excuse for everybody else to not hang out with me. It'd be like, don't hang out with a ginger kid, freckles or cooties. And it wasn't so much the fact that they were calling me a ginger. It was more of the action of, of uh, neglect from my peers that, you know, could cause me to not, that, to have pain that I, as a child, I didn't know how to cope with it you know i didn't know how to find meaning in pain you know right so you started on marijuana and then what happened after that in terms of your journey with drugs 
Um, so, I mean, a start of marijuana, I remember really thinking, um, like, of people who did ecstasy or meth or anything like that. I thought of it as, like, why would you do that to yourself? But, uh, you know, I so I stuck to the all-naturals. It was, like, weed, shrooms, um, mescaline, anything that came to earth was, like, my rationalization. And then I tried Adderall for the first time. And I don't remember when that was, but I remember feeling like, man, I really like this. And uh, that's when I got into prescriptions and said, well, if it's from the earth or it's a prescription, it's fine. I started ecstasy when I was, I think, like uh, like 20. And uh, when I did ecstasy, it was kind of like it opened up. It's like whenever I bent my rules, it's like I got a payoff for it. So when I bent my rules to do Adderall, there was the payoff of the uh, the experience and then when I bent my rules to do ecstasy, there was a payoff of that experience. And every time I got a payoff, it incentivized me to not have rules. And I just really thought that I would be under control. I remember doing ecstasy and thinking it was therapeutic. And so I sold it and I was like an advocate for it. And it may have been therapeutic to the first time I did it because I did have a complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And now they're showing that MDMA can help with that. But when I continued using it, I used that excuse. And I did the same thing with DXM, which is found in like certain certain types of Robitussin. And uh, I, it was therapeutic my first time. I remember a therapist telling me um, that I struggle with depression and she wanted to give me on antidepressants. And I was like, well, I know ketamine helps with depression. I can't get that, so I'll do DXM. And I convinced myself it was therapeutic. That was a lot of the rationalization. I was intellectualizing the drug use. And also I look at the D.A.R.E. propaganda and see how they lied to me. And then uh, I would, as a result, I would go on the internet and look up things on the internet. And uh, there's almost like two, now as an adult, I know there's almost two types of propaganda. There's anti-drug and pro-drug. I mean, nothing's really balanced anymore. If they say bad things on about ecstasy, people are going to get mad, go to the internet, and post good things about ecstasy. But it's really neither bad or good. It, it's yep. just a drug, and it, it's really relying on the person. So then when I tried meth at, like, 20, that I thought I was only going to do it once. And I remember it's a lot like Adderall, which I still believe that in my experience. But I thought if I could handle Adderall, I could handle this. But it was a lot cheaper. The ritual was intoxicating. Um some about it was just alluring and uh, I became a meth addict and that that's kind of my drug of choice but really I was experimental and my purpose back then was to try almost every drug out there and I know there's like hundreds and thousands of drugs when you take into account all the research chemicals and obscure things but I pretty much done almost every mainstream drug except for LSD and uh, that was kind of just like my mission and I, I was able to pick up things and put them down except for ecstasy and meth and uh, meth really took my soul like fast. Wow. You know, it's interesting, your quote unquote philosophy that when you started, um, if it was natural like marijuana, then it was okay. You know, I wonder sometimes how many people even today kind of, you know, justify the use of marijuana because it comes from a plant. Therefore, it's natural. Therefore, it can't really hurt you. I just wonder. Yeah, well, I mean, marijuana was the because every time the most destructive drug. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, marijuana was the most yeah, and every time we drug ever did. Right, and every time we talk about marijuana and how it's not the marijuana of the '70s, and you know, it's not 
you know, it's, it, it is addictive and it does cause long-term damage, you know, we get all kinds of flack um, on social media because there are so many people that just really want to justify their use of it. And I wonder if part of that justification is the fact that it's quote-unquote natural, although I would question how natural it is today, in fact. Yeah, I mean, as a medication, marijuana is like, it can be a great thing for some people that have chronic pain and it's an alternative to like Vicodin or Oxycontin. Um, and for people that struggle with other issues and, uh, but it's like, you know, anytime something starts becoming legal or, or socially normed, it's always marketed as the solution for everything. You know what I mean? And, uh, even like right. bear, even yeah. like released heroin and everybody thought that was okay. And if you really even look back, there was a time where people didn't know cigarettes were addictive. There was a time where Philip Morris was in front of That's Congress right. telling them they're not that addictive. And now we recognize it. So really, it's just about being on the right side of history for me. I would say marijuana was the most destructive drug, more destructive. I would say meth was more destructive, but it wasn't a silent killer. I knew it was destructive. Marijuana was destructive in the sense that it was like a ninja. It was doing it in such a way that I didn't even realize until I quit using it. And a lot of people, like, they feel like, they're promoting an idea of abstinence. And I think really, if there's no problem with marijuana, then take some time to not do it and see who you are without it. I mean, I don't think there's necessarily a problem with the substance, but when people are smoking it all day, every day, and they haven't taken a break to kind of evaluate their relationship with the substance in the past three years or four, then take a break, you know, just to kind of show yeah. show uh, show you can and and uh see what your relationship's like because you can't really see a relationship with a substance when you're using it all the time but yeah That's i'm pretty right. passionate about that stop, i think on youtube I'm that known. should tell you something too mm-hmm. sorry exactly yeah taking a break i i'm a i'm very yep. much am a proponent of fasting i think if even if like i said they'll say like video games are psychologically addictive. I'm like, well, yeah, but you should take breaks from video games too. Like anything in your, in my life that I feel like I'm doing all the time, I should take a break from because they, I mean, it's called fasting. It's really a way to kind of like evaluate your relationship with your outside world and your surroundings. So I don't know, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about marijuana and is I talk about it on my channel and I know videos help a lot of people, but like you said, there's also a lot of hate that comes with it. But in the end of the day, I'm going to be on the right side of history yep. when, when the science and data is out because it's not legal, I will be the one that's was basic. I don't, I don't care to say I told you so, but I know those videos will still be up and I know I could be proud of them. I don't care. I know withdrawals are real. I know it affects my short term memory, my motivation. It affects me as a person. It has a very huge negative effect on my life, and I used it for so long that honestly, I'd say it's the most destructive drug I ever did. And I've done meth, I've done, I've done crack, I've done cocaine, I've done heroin, and nothing was more destructive than marijuana. If you add up the amount of money lost, time lost, the amount of motivation lost, and memory loss, and just like potential, like because everything else, yeah, it was more destructive in the short term, but at least I could see it as an enemy. It wasn't lying to me. Right. But anyways, I'm right. done with my rant Well, we're going to be on the same side. <laughs> That's okay. We're going to be on the same side of that argument that you are. We are, um, you know, we have on many times on the podcast talked about marijuana and why it should never be legalized recreationally. We have no issue with it being used for people who need it medically, especially, you know, 
end of life people with cancer they're not going to get any better and you know it can help manage pain better than some more addictive opioids but never recreationally we are flat out against that so we're going to be on the same side of that argument as you are mm-hmm. philip when you know we called this podcast point of no return so you're you know you you're addicted to meth um I'm assuming you went through college. Did you stay addicted through college? Yeah, I got my associates of science and I was addicted. Uh, I passed my classes. I used the math for about eight, eight months. And uh, while I was using it, yeah, I was in school and I managed to pass. I don't know how that happened. I struggle school, with school more now that I'm sober, which is odd. I think it's because school was like an external thing that brought me joy, just like drugs. So I was actually better at school when I was in an addictive mind state where now I run on inspiration. So I look at school and I'm like, I'm not really inspired to do this, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I, cool. I, under, I understand. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-314. 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohai.org. That's N A R C O N O N O J A I.org. Or call 1 866 231 5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So what was the point at which you said you had to get clean and sober? or things were going to go badly for you? What was that point for you? I had two points. So the June 9th, 2013 point was like, it was like a brief moment of sanity. And, um, and, you know, I basically was seeing the uh, way my life was and the way it was heading. And it really felt like a logical conclusion that my life is going to get worse because it has gotten worse over the past however many years. It's going to continue getting worse. In other words, I'm going to end up using more. I'm going to be more isolated. I'm going to be more depressed, more anxious. And it was seeing the the path and understanding that I could choose my own way, like that I'm choosing this path and this path is going down. It's not going up. And I, I really had a moment of clarity where it was just like I could choose a different way. And it was really like a crossroads moment. I was at a Taco Bueno with my mom and, uh, 
I had the option of her taking me to treatment or going home and using, and that was the crossroads. And at that moment, I chose to go to treatment. And when I was in treatment, I really gave it everything I got. And that was like the first time, but this last most recent time was such a different experience <laughs> where like I relapsed on October 9th to October 24th. So it was like, or maybe a little longer. I don't know the exact days. I think it was a two to three week long relapse. And um, so that was like, I was depressed for like two years and, and uh, like severely depressed. And uh, it would come in waves and it was really like this obsessive state of mind where I was just always obsessing about something, always anxious. I couldn't really sleep well. I would stay up late and uh, I felt this weight in my chest. And if people ask me how I felt in this time, we were, I was talking about feelings and therapy and I was like, I didn't have feelings. I, my only feeling was empty. And um, I was avoiding feeling that with things outside of myself to an extreme, whether that's social media, spending money, saving money, going back to school, getting a personal trainer, going to meetings. But everything I was doing was trying to fix this emptiness with things outside of myself. And it seemed like I was, sometimes those things would work, but ultimately I would just crash. It was just like using drugs. I was living life in a way that was not manageable. I couldn't manage it. And um, so uh, I ended up finally using substances, but when I used them, it was a relapse and it was like, uh, well, uh, I'm honestly was more depressed than I was when I was using substances. I was more depressed in that state than I was in my addiction. And that was like, I think why I was okay with it, but really I did it to calm my obsession when things bad happened. Like something really bad happened October 8th and I was trying to calm my obsession. And, um, and then I, I ended up going on a three week spree where I just rationalized everything and it all felt okay because I knew I was going to quit at some point. So then like two to three weeks, cause at this point I'm insane. Like, I was looking at, I was like, I, I remember being paranoid and I was like, I feel like I'm being watched and I was being watched. Like I was this guy on YouTube that had over 200,000 subscribers talking about drug addiction and that, like, and uh, at the same time I am using drugs. Yeah. And then, uh, for, so I stopped and I, I cold turkeyed it, went through benzo and alcohol withdrawal, which I could have died from. And, uh, after that, that, it was, there was no like wanting to use, but I still felt this, this this emptiness in my chest, this weight, this depression. And um, I was about six weeks sober when I went to rehab. And I, I, I felt so desperate to just not feel this emptiness anymore. And nothing worked. I tried drugs. Those didn't work. And those were kind of like my last resort. So by the time I tried drugs, I felt like I tried everything to fix it. Something's more healthy, something's more unhealthy. But it seemed like nothing would fix it. And uh, so I went to treatment. Uh, to try to find a way to fix this emptiness. And obviously it helped, right? Um, treatment, I mean, it helped while I was there. And uh, I think the fact that it helped while I was there was like good for me because it gave me an idea of what a, a life would look like, a lifestyle. Because like in treatment, it's like it's really a, a designed environment where you're around people all the time. You're around staff, you're around clients, yeah. and you're always working on yourself. And uh, so in that environment, like I thrived. And then when I got back home in Dallas, because I was in Los Angeles in treatment, and when I got to Dallas, it was like the emptiness just came back full force because 
my lifestyle is not like rehab, but the fact that I went to rehab, it could kind of give me an idea of what my lifestyle would look like if I were to be happy. So what did I have in rehab? I mean, as simply put is I was a part of a larger community and I was working on myself, those two things. And that's like, those are two things that I didn't have for a long time, you know, but the main thing was being part of a larger community. I would say the clients helped me just as much, if not more so than the staff, because a lot of the, um, right. the therapy, like CBT, I know a lot of that stuff. So it wasn't really being taught much on the, uh, therapy side because I had been at it for so long and this is like kind of like my career but it was really the being a part of a larger community so when I got back to Dallas like well what can I do to be a part of a larger community so I started volunteering to help kids with critical illness I started going to meetings every day I started uh, getting out and doing things getting involved in yoga groups or climbing groups to be a part of communities positive ones so that's how rehab really helped me it wasn't really like the solution in and of itself, but it showed me what the solution was to an extent. That's, that's fabulous. And that's a, that's a great message for people who, who are listening. And, you know, we had a young gentleman call in one time and he um, and his wife were, um, had done treatment and were in recovery and they live in the middle of nowhere. And so they didn't have any kind of support group and, what they did was to start their own support group. And that's another idea, but it sounds like what you decided to do was also super valuable because the minute you start helping somebody else, it kind of doesn't become all about you. Yeah, the volunteer work is great. I think the important thing is being a part of a, a larger community that's, that has a positive goal, You know, whether that be for the world or for themselves. And, um, you know, I think that support group meetings are great, but if I do have access to them, I think it's a good idea to start my own at that point, or it's a good idea to really look around for volunteer work. Cause that's where you're around positive people. And, uh, there's a difference between having friends and being yep. in a community. And, uh, I have always had good friends, but there's a big difference between that and my working together with people on a project because projects give me a sense of accomplishment community gives me like I think it actually supplies the brain with endorphins and dopamine like I found a lot of my way to cope with pain is humor and how am I supposed to have humor without other people and then it's another way I cope with pain is exactly. love and how am I supposed to have love without other people and so there's a big difference between just having friends that you already love they already love you and meeting new people to learning to love more people and, and being loved and having people know your name and uh, having a purpose and a goal where you accomplish it together and you feel good about it. So I think um, volunteer work has been very helpful. I think that's great. I think that's a great message. Philip, what, why did you start your YouTube channel? Why did you start doing the videos? What was the purpose? To make content for the active addict. Because like a lot of the meetings I go to, they act like the new person's the most important person. And I don't feel like enough is being done to reach active addicts. And a lot of people don't really understand how they think or operate or what they're looking for. And I do because like I could talk drugs. I could talk it well. Like it's a, it's a language addicts don't understand. So I go on like if I go on YouTube and I look up drug addiction back then, and this is kind of what incentivized me was everything would be these people talking recovery. And it's like nonstop. And I'm like, well, 
that's great for somebody in recovery, but addicts don't speak recovery. And I know as an addict, I wouldn't even search for this kind of stuff. And if I clicked it, I would be disappointed. So I realized, you know, if I talk drugs, like at least they can relate. And I'm not trying to be their solution. I'm trying to plant a seed. So I do tell them I'm sober at the beginning and end. I don't really invite them to reach out to me, but I allow them to. And a lot of the reason I do that was to empower them because every influencer can get addicts to love them. I'm trying to get addicts to love themselves. So if I push them to text me, then I'm kind of stripping that power away from them. Even if I don't reply to their text, the fact that they did something can make them feel good about themselves. It's an act of self-love because they weren't pushed to do that or sold that. And I don't sell recovery for that reason. I want them to feel empowered if they say they need help for the first time, not me telling them that they need help. And so I, I kind of like designed this, this channel to uh, reach the active addict and empower them. And I figured in the process of that, like the general public could be educated because a lot of uh, after the meetings, a lot of times we do talk drugs and we joke around and, and to I feel like to us, that's normal. But to the average person, that's interesting. You know, they want to actually see how we communicate and, uh, and uh, reach like, you know, medical field and just the general public and help the medical field understand these, these, this dialogue that we have that we can relate on. So a lot of it, it's kind of like a fusion of drug education. And uh, some of it is like, um, I do make some videos to kind of bring up some dogma I don't agree with uh, in some of the fellowships like recovery fellowships I, I i sometimes i will bring up what i don't agree with but for the most part it's really focused on uh on the drug experience the highs the lows and uh the recovery process from that particular substance so like the withdrawal and um it's not so much focused on recovery because i mean i feel like the sick don't need a doctor is kind of how i always felt and uh the people who are sick they don't really have much content that's aimed at, at reaching out to them, like aimed at entertaining and engaging their interest. And, uh, you know, it, a lot of the stuff I saw is like no addict would watch this. Like, it, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Right. And so, uh, then there's just not much out there for them as terms of support. I mean, they're even in society, we're in like the war on drugs. And when I hear the word, First off, you can't have war with an inanimate object. We're in the war on drug addicts. And it's like we're in the war on a certain demographic of people. And then when you say the word war, it's like that entails like violence is okay. And so like the whole society has been right. so desensitized. Like when people see a homeless person, they don't give them money. And what they say is, oh, he's going to buy drugs with it. And like that's that's exactly where society has like is, is shown that they are the scapegoats. They are the people that we don't want to talk about or look at. And uh, I mean, when I see a homeless person, I'm like, who wouldn't want to buy drugs in that situation? I don't blame them. But it's like crazy how people will use that right. to avoid being kind to another human being. And drugs are the the whole thing. It's been demonized, stigmatized. So. I feel like that's why there's not much content for them is they are the scapegoats of a society. They are, are a lot of, in a lot of ways are, are failing and nobody wants to look at them because to look at them is to say, this is where we failed. And then nobody wants to make content for them. They want to be basically, they don't exist, cast them away. Don't think about them. Don't talk about them. And uh, so when I made my channel, I, I mean, that's really what I'm trying to do is give them a light and that's who I'm focused on. Well, 
and obviously your channel is hugely popular. I would think also with families who maybe they suspect they have a loved one that's addicted or maybe they know they have a loved one that's addicted. Where do you get information? Where do you get honest information about the various drugs? And I think mm -hmm. you put that out there on YouTube. And I think that that's, I think that's valuable. Mm-hmm. Philip, if you had just one message to give to our listeners, um, what would that be? Well, like, uh, um, I mean, it would probably be, like, a lot more focused on how I'm recovering now, which is completely different from how I've recovered in the past. I, like, in the past, when I talked about the first time I got sober, like, I recovered by by doing like actions, which is great. And I still do that today. But I remember like, I didn't love myself. So I wrote down, what would I do if I love myself, and I would do it. And eventually, my mind would line up with that. But this time around, I was so depressed that I could write down a list of what I would do if I love myself. And I just would never stay consistent with it. I had to go a lot deeper. I had to meditate and connect with myself at a very conscience being level. And then that, that, that was a big thing for me was understanding that I am a consciousness that the, the human brain is like almost an obstruction to the spirit. And uh, because of that, like freedom of choice, I believe is a relative concept. And uh, you know, somebody who has anxiety might not have as much freedom of choice to go into a social setting. But if they do, that's empowering. And that really is their spirit making that choice. Their mind is telling them not to, but there's something that can be aware of those unconscious emotional drives and those brain mechanisms and decide, I am aware my brain is doing this, but I'm still going to follow through. That's what I call a spirit. So by doing acts that I don't necessarily want to do, I am building my ability to have freedom of choice and freedom. But to do that, I really needed to meditate and connect at myself on a very deep subconscious level. And then when I did that and I started connecting, I realized that my consciousness or my spirit is like a child or like a sheep is a good analogy. Like it's really not, it's not developed because these obstructions have been taking over for so long. And the way of living that I was living was not in a way that was going to nurture my inner strength. And I had to, at that point, I realized I needed guidance from a higher power. And, um, you know, for me, my higher power is an embodiment of all the good principles we talk about in society, honesty, uh, self-care, um, kindness, patience. And it's like all these things have an infinite capacity. Like there, you can always be more kind, more patient, more loving. So in a way, I took the infinite capacity and embodied it into a being and allowed that to guide me. And I pray to it and I have a connection with it. And what I've learned is if I stay close to this entity and just do its work well, it will provide everything that I need. And um, a lot of the 12-step uh, the literature talks about this, but I feel like it's glanced over a lot. It's a total new way of living where I understand that uh, if I need to not feel empty, it will help me not feel empty. If I need um, purpose, it will give me purpose. If I need friends, it will give me friends. All I have to do is stay close, listen, and perform its work well. And that has completely opened up like a, uh, that's how I stay sober now. And that's the only thing that would solve the two-year-long depression that I was going through. And it was a very, uh, I thought nothing else had worked at all. 
And so now it's like, um, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point right now. It's a deliberate effort because literally my whole foundation for living had to be smashed. Like my thought that money will bring me peace or money will fill the emptiness or friends will fill the emptiness or doing good things will fill the emptiness. Like literally nothing will fill the emptiness, but a connection with this conscious being. So the fact that my old way of living that living for 30 years has to go away, the foundation, I need it to become a word of the mind. In other words, like when I type on a keyboard, I'm not thinking about it. But if I think about it, I can't do it. In other words, this this way of living, of relying on the external world for joy or to be full, as it, it's literally my working part of the mind now, and I need to transition it into another way of life. So I'm, I have to be very consistent. And when I'm working with a sponsor, the sponsor I work with, is uh, he he does live that way of life, and that's what I was looking for. That's what I wanted. And um I'm glad that that's what I wanted and that's what I got out of the recovery program and the recovery process because I feel like grateful because a lot of people don't know that there's another way of living of relying on a power greater than ourselves until they die and they, they live a state where all their joy and happiness is relying on the external world and they're never fully satisfied or content or full. Like, and, uh, you know, I think this is something everybody could use. I'm just fortunate enough to have an illness that brought me, to this realization. But yeah, that's, that would be my biggest message of that I would share with people. Well, I think that's a great message. And Philip, if the listeners want to find you on YouTube, are you there? You're there under CG kid, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, CG kid pretty much everywhere. Instagram, um, Spotify, uh, every platform out there. Perfect. Philip, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today on the podcast. I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed our interview today with Philip Markoff, also known as CG Kid. He has a couple hundred thousand people that watch his videos on YouTube. If you want some really good hardcore interviews about different drugs and what the experience is like. Um, you should check him out on YouTube. His channel is CG Kids. As a last reminder, please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and find us on YouTube. And our channel is the Addiction Podcast Point of No Return. Please subscribe on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will be back again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.